and welcome to a special ICAW Insights in Focus podcast in which we've got leading economists taking the pulse of the UK economy and providing perceptive opinions as to what this will mean for businesses, large and small, over the coming weeks and months. Over the last 15 years or so, and indeed in the last few short years, we've had several globally significant historic events which will have an impact upon society and economies for years to come. We've had a deep recession caused by the financial crash in 2008. We've had a global health and economic crisis caused by COVID-19. We're experiencing a geopolitical and security crisis arising from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And as a direct result of that tragedy, we're seeing a global energy crisis fueling, that's probably the wrong choice of word, inflationary rates not seen for over a generation. And that's not even taking into account other longer term trends, such as the impact of technology on business models, the transition to a net zero economy, an aging population throughout much of the world's biggest economies, including our own, and repercussions arising from the UK's decision to leave the European Union. So where does all this leave the prospects for the UK economy and businesses that will be shaping those prospects? Can we be positive? We're still the world's fifth biggest economy. We've got record numbers of people in full-time employment. We attract more capital than France and Germany combined into startups in sectors of the future like fintech. And we've got world-beating sectors like aerospace, engine and wing manufacture, pharmaceuticals, higher education, and indeed professional and business services. We're recording this on the day that GDP figures for May 2022 were published, and they show a surprising growth in the economy. So does this indicate the strength and resilience of the UK economy? Or should we be pessimistic? Inflation is eroding spending power at the highest rate since 1982. Productivity, which is the real thing that produces living standard increases, flatlining for 15 years. And business investment, which propels future economic growth, falling by 9% since the pandemic. Are we in structural economic decline? I'm Ian Wright, Managing Director of Reputation and Influence here at ICAW. To make sense of all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by two leading economists, Kitty Usher, Chief Economist at the Institute of Directors and formerly a Member of Parliament and indeed Cities Minister at the Treasury, and Seren Thuru, who is our newly arrived Director of Economies at ICAW, having recently joined from the British Chambers of Commerce, where he was Head of Economics. Welcome both. It's great to have you here. So Kitty, I was sort of giving that sense of, should we be optimistic? Should we be pessimistic? Where are you on this? Well, businesses are feeling pessimistic. Um, and I noticed that you said it was surprising that GDP uh, showed growth in May compared to April. I think that we are being too pessimistic at the moment. I think there are many reasons to feel more confident than businesses and indeed consumers are, are, are currently feeling. Here's a few reasons. Uh, the economy has not been shut down by a pandemic. It has been uh, reopened. Um, we're able to go about our business. All else being equal, the economy does normally grow at a rate of like one and a half or two percent uh, a year. And whilst there are some, some big problems and issues, 
at the moment those are mainly on the supply side so how difficult it is to get inputs how to uh, uh, the obviously the rise in commodity prices particularly uh, in, in in energy and so businesses listening to this know that there are problems fulfilling orders but on the whole although it varies a bit sector to sector on the whole order books pipelines the volume of activity is is pretty robust so whilst you know we can never predict the future with certainty although i, I know it's my job to do so um uh, i would say that it's the fear of fear itself that is driving some of the issues at the moment rather than what we're actually seeing in reality and so where are you on this optimistic pessimistic spectrum and we we at icw have got the business confidence monitoring is that telling you in terms of where we should be in terms of the future of the economy yeah i mean the business confidence monitor is showing i guess two big stories the first one is as katie says activity is still holding up pretty well we're seeing domestic sales hold up pretty well but on the flip side we are seeing business this confidence starting to slide and that's due to number headers not least higher inflation so in answer to your question i'm probably slightly more on the pessimistic side and reason for that is what's happened to uk consumers and a huge squeeze on, on their real disposable income, so their incomes after inflation. We're seeing a huge hit to that, and that's going to have a knock-on impact on the economy going forward, because that's going to squeeze both demand potentially, but also fulfilment and activity. Uh, and, and of course, you have one thing we have to remember is that consumer spending accounts for a large part of the overall UK economy, around two-thirds. So that's going to have a good, quite a significant knock-on impact on overall economic growth as you move forward. Kitty mentioned sectors, and maybe on a sector-by-sector -sector mm -hmm. basis. Do you see when you're, you're talking to members, are there particular, you know, high levels of confidence for particular sectors, low levels of confidence for others? What is that showing you? And well, across the board, there's, there's really much a weakening in confidence, but we are seeing a particular weakening in confidence amongst consumer facing firms. And of course, these firms are hit hard by COVID because a lot of them are shut down for longer than other, other parts of the economy. What we're also seeing now is those types of businesses like restaurants, like hotels, are possibly more exposed to the current headwinds of other sectors because they're more uh, exposed to changes in consumer spending for example and what we've seen over recent months is retail sales start to slide on the back of this increase in inflation squeezing incomes. So Kitty I'm interested you've produced at the IOD a recent survey about inflation and I think that's the most pressing economic challenge, certainly in terms of the front and centre of businesses' minds. I think it's fair to say inflation wasn't born here, but it seems to be growing up here. I mentioned the survey that the IODs produced in which you comment about are we going to see persistent price rises? How long should we expect them? Um, could you expand on that? What was that showing you? Yes, I think um, perceptions of inflation are absolutely key to what's going on here. So um, Siren rightly mentioned that business confidence is very low, but it's low because they look at the world around them and say, whoa, we've got unstable prices. The first time in our sort of memories that they've, that they've been this high, therefore our confidence is low. What they're not on the whole saying is, um, whoa, I'm looking around and my order book has collapsed and I've got no one ringing up, the phone has stopped, they're not saying that. So that's why we need to sort of really understand the role that inflation is, is playing in how we're perceiving the economy at the moment. What our survey shows is that um, 
our members who are typically small and medium-sized companies, business leaders sitting around the boardroom table of those types of firms is that they think inflation won't peak until well into next year, whereas the official forecast from the Bank of England and probably most economists is that it will peak with the rise in the household energy price cap in October and then start to fall towards the end of the year, end of the year and into next year. Now, in a sense, if uh, business leaders are shown to be wrong as inflation actually does start falling obviously what their expectation will shift but that's potentially a problem um, because if they think inflation is going to persist um, well into 2023 then they may make business decisions um, uh, accordingly based on that assumption which will then affect the rate of inflation itself so a really sort of simple example is if um, if I'm running a business and my supplier rings up and says oh, I'm really sorry got to raise prices you know it's this inflation energy our input costs happy to break it all down for you but prices are going up by whatever percent if you believe that inflation will persist you're less likely to haggle you'll go yes I understand it's really quite difficult is there anything you can do but I'm not expecting you to we want to support you whereas if you think inflation is going to fall you go hang on I'm going to go out to tender again you know I'm not quite sure if this is you know really uh, uh, what uh, reflects reality or whether we've just got into the habit of putting prices up and so the fact that our members are saying they think inflation will persist could become therefore self-fulfilling filling to a certain extent and so the Bank of England's got a bit of a job of work to do to show that they're kind of on it more than they <laughs> people think they are on it at the moment. Yeah I was gonna say I mean there was there's some good news around I think you're right I think that one thing's been to look at is what are consumers businesses perception of inflation over the medium term. We are seeing some good news on the consumer side we've seen surveys from the Bank of America for example showing actually their ex consumers expectations of inflation over the next couple of years is actually falling and they're pretty steady on wages as well. So that's good news for the Bank of England. But that's also quite surprising in one way, given that inflation is at a 40 year high. So that seems to suggest in some, some sense that confidence among consumers is really low about their own finances. Um, and, and I think that's feeding through. And, and that's a slight concern is that one thing that may drag inflation down is weaker demand, as in consumers can't afford to pay for stuff. I think you're absolutely right that if consumer demand started to fall back, we should all be very, very concerned because, as you say, um, consumers are the largest proportion of the economy when you're sort of trying to work out where GDP changes come from. But there are a few things that should make us a little bit less kind of cautious about this. The last time consumer confidence was this low was going into uh, the recession that followed the financial crisis. But at that point, consumers were much more overextended in terms of their credit than they are at the moment. So it was almost like there was a moment of reckoning where everyone looked at their credit card bill or thought about their mortgage a bit more and went, oh my goodness, I'm overextended. I need to, you know, I need to stop spending. I need to pay this debt down. At the moment, whilst there are some real difficulties sort of at the bottom end of the income distribution and households that, have, that are li living sort of hand to mouth and on a tight budget. At the top end, maybe the top 40-50%, people are still sort of slightly feeling, oh, I've managed to they, um, uh, build up some savings during, during the pandemic, it, I can spend a bit more now, I can go on holiday uh, and I can run that back down to a level that I'm, that I'm used to. So although confidence is, is terrible because of all this hashtag cost of living crisis that is very real for lots of people um, and high inflation, um, in, in, in terms of how that translates into behaviour, we have not yet seen uh, what, what caused the recession in 2008. I'm surprised how optimistic you're being that inflation will peak and then come down relatively rapidly. Doesn't history show it's very persistent? Kitty, 
stagflation's been mentioned, that we're going to have high inflation, low growth prospects. We saw that, you know, related to energy in 1973, after the oil price hike, Japan had a lost decade of economic growth in the 1990s. Are we in the UK going to see something similar? Stagflation is a dramatic headline. Um, of course, it's possible, uh, but I think the most likely scenario at the moment is that inflation will peak and start falling relatively rapidly. I think it'll feel very different this time next year. The reason is that it's being driven by the high international price of energy, um, which has risen and is now roughly sort of flat. Um, so unless it rises again very dramatically, um, then uh, the maths of it, boring, I know, um, means that prices will stop increasing. They'll just remain at a sort of higher level. So since inflation is the rate at which prices are increasing, it will then come back down to zero quite or near the Bank of England's target quite quite rapidly. So do you agree with Kitty? And, and let me ask, and maybe Kitty can come in as, again. I, I was quite careful in saying inflation wasn't born here. It's about energy prices, but it's growing up here because presumably people are now thinking, well, actually, inflation's at 9%. I want a 10 or 11% pay increase. And that's just going to sustain these high prices. Inflation will persist because people will want extra money in their pay packets, won't they? I mean, I'm, I, I've seen agreed to Kitty, actually. I think I'm relatively optimistic. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. The, and some reason in the maths, as you say, the year, it's a year-on-year -year measure of inflation. So we're moving to a period, particularly as we move to August, where you're comparing a period where inflation started to jump. For example, August last year was the first time inflation jumped above the Bank of England's 2% target. Um, but we're also seeing in what's happening with pay is quite interesting. Well, we are seeing uh, regular pay, that's before bonuses, um, it's picking up compared to the uh, last couple of years. It's obviously nowhere near where inflation is at the moment. But what we are seeing is total pay, which includes uh, bonus payments, one-off payments, actually increasing. So that's around 7% at the moment. So what you're seeing is businesses rather than reacting to high inflation by giving inflation-linked um, uh, increases, they're looking at more innovative ways of trying to retain staff, so one-off bonus payments, but also things like providing more flexible working, that sort of thing. I think that gives me some confidence as well. What was might also happen is that if the economy continues to flow in recession over the next year or so, that will, that, well, a product of that is weaker demand. Um, so again, will help uh, keep living inflation as well, beyond what we're seeing in the moment, which is quite a significant energy shock. And that sounds all really helpful and, uh, and informative, but people are suffering out there. You've mentioned people on low pay, um, and it might you know, be pushing up the income stream, are facing you know, real cost of living crisis because price increases are very evident in the supermarkets you know, on a week by week basis. And then again, businesses, if you're in the building trade, you're seeing materials go up 20, 30%. How do you help people? And in particular, you know, we're in the midst of a Conservative Party leadership contest. We'll have a new Prime Minister in eight weeks. Could be a new change of economic policy. They're all talking about tax cuts. Is that the best thing to help people or will that just fuel demand and fuel inflation? I think it's important to, re to remember the way that policy is um, made in this country. It is the job of the Bank of England to keep inflation in the medium term near its 2% target. Um, and the way that it does that is it, it looks at what the government has decided to do and sort of takes that into account and then sets interest rate and um, quantitative easing or, or whatever it's doing. Um, so it's entirely up to the democratic elected government to decide you know, how they're going to 
distribute um, spending within the economy and that's that's their right to do it that's what we elect them to do so I don't think it necessarily follows that if an incoming government decides to prioritize tax cuts which they which they can choose to do um, uh, that it will necessarily mean that inflation won't come down as fast it just might mean that the Bank of England will make different choices to compensate for that in terms of which tax cuts to do, obviously that's the matter that the Conservative leadership contest is uh, debating. It's not necessarily up, for, up to business to intervene at this point. Um, but what our members are, are telling us is that the rise in national insurance contributions paid by employers, you know, just putting to one side what employees uh, are having to, to pay, has had a massive and negative effect on their profit and loss account because it's a flat cost um, regardless of whether they're profitable or not. So um, whilst any cut in business taxation will be relevant, I'm sure, and welcome to lots of people listening uh, to this podcast, um, if, if there's a choice, I think it's important to go, go back to that decision that was made at very short notice outside of a budget, outside of a finance bill um, that we think was totally unnecessary and is causing real difficulties at a time that um, supply costs are rising anyway. Let me move on to the labour market because it's interesting what seems to be happening and businesses who are listening to this will be making decisions, looking at their skills, their workforce and deciding what can we do next. Labour market seems really odd to me. You know, you wouldn't expect in this point for it to be, you know, so hot. Has COVID altered it? What are the fundamentals of the labour market? Is it just that we've got a mismatch between skills, the supply and, and demand and what's out there? Soren? Yeah, so I think what's quite interesting about you, quite, it is quite an odd picture um, where you see the headline unemployment rates, uh, you know, it's below where it was pre-COVID. But that, a lot of that is driven because the size of the workforce is smaller now compared to where we saw before COVID. And there's a couple of reasons for that. We saw a lot of overseas workers um, leave in the aftermath of Brexit, but what we've also seen is a lot of people um, over the age of 50 leave the labour market voluntarily, um, not partly due to uh, long-term illness. So that's the impact shrinking the uh, workforce. So you see the number of job vacancies are constantly at a record level, um, where you're seeing the economic inactivity rate, which is uh, those who have, have almost voluntarily left the market, labour market, as it were, um, actually increase over this period. So that's having a, a, const a constraint on, on the UK economy because you can't find people to fill jobs, you need know, to, to um, chefs to, um, to for restaurants, you have to reduce your service uh, amount, that sort of thing. So I think we're seeing a real on-the-ground impact of those constraints. And that's having an impact on wages, but it's also having an impact on inflation as well, and that sort of take loan market. What can we do, Kitty, on that? Is, is Seren right in terms of that grave wave of the resignations? Are they concentrated about people in their 50s? And is it not about COVID hit, March 2020, people started to reevaluate about their lives and think, I don't want this anymore. You know, life's too short. I'm going to go off and do something else that I want to do. Or is it, as Seren was saying, actually wasn't through choice, it was through illness. Well, you know, has long COVID had a long impact mm. upon the labour market? And what do we do about that? I think it's all of the above. The Office of National St Statistics has done some work and the, the biggest single group is people who are now declaring themselves as um, too sick to work. And these are people um, pre-retirement age. 
So that's, that's a rather sad and sorry story. Um, you've got another group who have taken early retirement and another group who have said, you know, for lifestyle reasons, they don't want to do this anymore. You've got people staying at college longer, which makes sense if it's an uncertain jobs market. And then set against all of that, you've got more people working who had previously said that they couldn't work because they were, I think the category is looking after family or home. And so that suggests perhaps that um, uh, the rise in remote working is making labour force participation easier for some categories of worker, which is quite exciting for businesses because it means they can tap into new um, talent pools. In terms of what, what can be done, I think it depends what happens to the labour market in future. If it continues to run really hot, and we have to remember, you know, that whilst it might be sort of frustrating to find your real wages going down a bit, that's nothing compared to what happens to your incomes if you lose your job, so at least people are in work. Um, if it continues to run really hot, it may be that some of that unwinds slightly as you know, a few years in, people, um, people's lives readjust and they decide they do want to take part. Um, if, it, uh, if it ends up being there's far less vacancies and less opportunities, I suspect this may be um, something that just passes through the generations and we'll have to, we'll have to wait for um, the sort of natural passage of time b before this, um, this sort of lump, lump <laughs> of people, number of people who are older have left the labour market to, um, to sort of uh, vanish naturally. And then just going back to your earlier point about what the government should be doing or, or any prospective prime minister should be doing in this space, of course a lot of focus has been on tax cuts and while sort of targeted fiscal support for those consumers and businesses that are really struggling is important, what they should be really focusing on is, is addressing some of these supply side constraints which is pushing up inflation and also limiting economic activity. Particularly around the labour market is looking at what can be done to help people get back into the labour market if they want to. Um, you know, looking at retraining schemes, looking at making things like the apprenticeship levy more flexible, um, so businesses can use the funding as they wish. Those sort of measures will help trying to get people back into the labour market as well. Yeah. But also on the short term, what they need to be, because that's more sort of long term sort of changes, is to look at how we can get people, you know, from overseas back into the labour market, looking at things like the occupation list, looking at expanding that as an interim measure to try and fill in those vacancies. But Kitty, you know, Serena's just mentioned about short term and, and long term, and you know, changing the apprenticeship levy, getting more people into further in higher education are good long-term ways in which we can expand the skills base for the knowledge economy. I get all that. But businesses are having to make decisions now, aren't they? And is it, are you finding that, are your members saying, look, we could really grow, we could expand, you know, there's a big bounce and demand post-COVID, but we haven't got the staff. I mean, you're seeing that in airports, you're seeing it in other parts of the economy. Are businesses making that choice? We'll either grow faster, and that helps the economy, or are we just going to have to curtail our services? What can be done when that seems to be down to staff? Yeah, they, I mean, they are certainly saying in our surveys that staff shortages are a major pain point for them. And they also think that responsibility for that is split between the private sector and um, the government. So they're looking for greater partnership working. I think there was quite an interesting example last autumn when there, as there was a much publicised shortage of HGV drivers and you found, you know, quite immediate interventions of um, some companies and working with the government in order to um, get more people trained up and through. And I think that that has to be the short term approach. Um, what we think the, 
where the gap is, is a proper understanding of where current and future skills shortages are likely to be. And we think there's a gap for a sort of technocratic government agency or something that can advise on that. And then flowing from that, there are policy implications that, that come out of it, maybe tax breaks if you're an employer and you train people in that particular area, for example, or channeling um, training provision in those in, in, in those particular skill shortage areas. Um, and in terms of you know, Brexit, there was a mandate for Brexit and part of that mandate was um, not to have greater immigration. That's effectively the democratic interpretation of, of what happened. So now what we're saying is the government needs to take the next step and make sure that we are home growing the skills that, that we need. And I, I don't think we're, we're quite there yet in terms of government action. I mentioned earlier on that I think inflation is you know, the, the big front and centre economic challenge that businesses is facing. But I'm really interested in productivity. Because I think, actually, in the overall scheme of things, that is the structural challenge that the economy faces. Now, business leaders, people listening to this might have different views and go, well, productivity is not front and centre about what I'm thinking about. But presumably, you know, the efficiency and effectiveness in which we produce stuff is really important for our competitive position. Um, and it's the way in which we see living standards rise. Productivity as GDP um, per hour worked is now higher than it was before the pandemic but it's reduced in 2022 and by international standards the UK is about 15% behind France the US and Germany what should we do about productivity what can businesses be doing in order to make us more competitive to make us more innovative and ultimately help raise living standards is this the big puzzle Kitty. Well, I think productivity puzzle has almost become a cliche. It's a very important question, Ian, and you're absolutely right to uh, ask it. We could probably talk about it for hours. Let me try and do so uh, efficiently. Um, the link with inflation, of course, is that if you think the world is an um, uncertain place, then you're going to hoard cash and not invest it in things that might raise productivity and growth of your own business uh, in the future. So there's a confidence problem there. What we're saying is that um, when you're in that situation, the, that government policy needs to work even harder. And so having a bit of policy instability with a change of leadership is not helping in that regard because the outgoing chancellor had made it very clear, for example, that he was going to make the um, capital allowance tax super deduction, big jargon there, um, but you know, make it more advantageous to, to, to invest, it was going to make that temporary measure uh, permanent, it was also going to look at tax credits for workplace training, uh, there's lots of work going on to encourage digitisation, all of which have a, a direct effect on productivity. Um, so we think there's loads that, that, that can be done um, to try and sort of shift the dial permanently on this. Seren, I'm really interested in what Kitty says, you know, and you know, far, far be it from us to advise the Conservative Party leadership candidates, but in terms of, you know, policies that will really help businesses, is it what Kitty suggests, you know, you've got to incentivise businesses to invest, you don't have a tax on jobs in terms of national insurance contributions from employers, what would you be suggesting in terms of to boost our productivity? Well, firstly, I think productivity is a huge issue, and, and I think it's, it feeds into some of the wider policy issues like levelling up, for example, where productivity in London is, is much higher than other parts of the country, for example. But I think uh, there's probably two main areas I'd focus on. I think 
what we were talking about earlier around skills, around um, trying to keep skills in, within a business. I think that's what they all talk about on the ground, productivity, trying mm -hmm. to keep people skilled within a business. You know, if you train someone up on an apprentice for, apprenticeship, for example, if they go off somewhere else, that, that impacts your business. So why would you invest them in the first place? I think looking at ways you can retain people, I think is quite important. Um, but another area, I think you mentioned business investments, really key area, and that's where the UK has lagged quite significantly over the last few years. For example, last year we saw the overall UK economy grow by its highest rate since around the 1940s. But business investment actually fell last year. And that's a number of reasons for that, not least the wider environment and some uncertainty, not linked to Brexit, but other factors as well. Um, but I think incentives is absolutely important. So I think super deduction is on one area, but also I think it's not just one lever to pull to boost business investment. We have to look at what businesses are investing in. So you're looking at investing in ideas, for example. So look at whether the R&D tax credit could be reformed. I think that's another area as well. But also, again, going back to our discussion on the labour market, looking at ways of providing incentives to train people, you know, some sort of tax credit, for example, um, to support businesses who want to train people up. And I think that's something like that will actually help sort of boost um, business investment and buy, thereby overall productivity. Kitty, I was struck by some of your comments earlier on about uncertainty and you know if you think back till from 2008 we've just lived in a world of uncertainty it's crisis after crisis it's just the context it's just the environment that we live in now so that being the case you know we're never going to get i can't see a scenario where we have a sort of a benign set of you know boring global indicators we're not there you know even if you don't think about shocks like pandemic and invasion of countries it's things like technological revolution and aging population that sort of thing so why can't businesses think i can't hold cash you know this is not this is not a fruitful use of our assets our capital base we need to we need to invest to think about it why why don't businesses have that sort of mindset because we're never going back to a boring global world where nothing happens well, maybe this is where organisations like the ICAEW and the Institute of Directors can, can, can help by providing insights just, just like this. And what, what I say to, to our members when I meet them around the country is there is a very high perception of risk at the moment. Um, but in terms of actual tangible you know, indicators of impending crisis, we're not seeing that, but we are seeing businesses make decisions uh, because they think the things that they can't control, i.e. the external environment, might be pointing downwards. So they're hoarding cash, they're building up inventories, they're you know, perhaps using invoice financing to a greater extent to make sure they have more, more cash around and so on. Um, so what, what I say is that um, everyone's feeling worried at the moment. That means your competitors are also feeling worried. And so if you think the fundamentals of your business are actually okay, you know, get into the weeds there, then you should be investing for your future because it may be that your competitors are too nervous to do so and in the medium term that will help you. Seren, what's your view about this in terms of hoarding cash in a high inflationary environment doesn't seem a great use of that asset. Do you agree with Kitty? I think there is that to a certain degree. We're seeing businesses trying to hedge against future uncertainty. You know, we've had examples where people's energy bills have increased from like 15,000 to 40,000 in just a few months. And there's a perception that that trade may continue to a certain extent. So you are getting that sort of behaviour. But I think what's going back to what we've seen in the last couple of years is quite interesting, particularly with COVID, where you saw businesses adapt to change, innovate, to, albeit in a stress uh, circumstance. But we saw, you know, uh, sort of restaurants, move to takeaways, use digital services, that sort of thing. Mm. I think that sort of innovation is really encouraging. 
and, and trying to foster that over the long term, I think, is something that will help boost productivity and overall activity. Kitty, I said we'll, we will have a new government in eight weeks and we might have a new chancellor. New chancellor calls you into the treasury and says, what helps businesses? What helps your members? What would you be advising him or her? I would say um, businesses at the moment are failing, facing really high costs. You, you, lots of that you can't do anything about, Chancellor, uh, but you did decide to increase those costs by raising national insurance contributions for employers, and that's something that you should reverse. Um, the, uh, the public finances can deal with that. Uh, I would say you need to aggressively make it uh, far, you know, use the tax policy um, to combat some of this external risks that people are seeing and make it incentivise firms to invest. So whether it's through the super deduction for fixed capital or whether it's through tax credits for training in skills shortages areas, being really kind of um, front foot about that would make a big difference and those are probably the most important things. In terms of net zero, we've been talking about corporation tax, I think there's, a, there's an argument uh, in the medium term to have a kind of wedge between the corporation tax rate paid by net zero um, firms compared to those that aren't net zero to get a really strong business incentive to invest in the change that, that's, that's, that's required there. I think that's four things, all of which are quite chunky and if you did all of those I think we'd be very pleased. Siren, is there anything that you would add or detract? You know, you've been called into the same meeting with the new Chancellor and the Chancellor says, you know, 160,000 chartered accountants, they're running businesses, they're making business decisions, they're advising businesses on a whole range of things about how to grow, how to be more productive. What are your members telling you that you could then pass on to the Chancellor to make their lives better and easier? I think the, the first thing for any new chance is to be realistic about some challenges around tax and spend over the next couple of years because it's going to be quite significant, not least on the back of COVID, but also what's happening in the moment, you know, weak tax receipts if the, the economy starts to contract. Um, but I think there needs to be focused on what you're taxing. If you're going to tax businesses, what are you taxing? Now, a big challenge at the moment, as, as Kitty mentioned, is costs. It's your sort of sunk costs you're paying no matter how well your business is doing, you know, like national insurance, like business rates, which is a big one. If you provide businesses more headroom in that space, well, maybe not necessarily pushing ahead with the headline corporation tax rise, for example, or, or, um, or cutting it as some uh, candidates have mentioned, which looks good in the global stage, but on the ground doesn't really help businesses who are struggling. So looking at giving business a bit of financial headroom, I think that's something I would say, but also looking at some of those more fundamental challenges around those supply side constraints, like looking at trying to uh, help businesses reskill people, that sort of thing is going to help both with some of the current challenges, but also some of the future challenges as well as the economy starts to adapt and move towards a greener economy. We've run out of time, that's it. Um, many thanks uh, to our guests, Kitty Usher from the IOD and Sarin Thiru from ICAW. And, and thanks for listening to this special episode. If you've enjoyed it, remember to rate, review and share. And of course, subscribe to ICAW Insights wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.